Uh, at this time, we're going to hear God's word together. Uh, but before we begin, let me just share a couple important notes. Uh, first, the sermon manuscript and uh, handout are available on our website. Just go to jakarta.agencies.net, and it's right there on the homepage uh, to help you to follow along in today's sermon. Uh, second and lastly, let's put aside any distractions as best as we can so that we can give our hearts and our attention fully uh, to God's word. And let me just pray first again before we get in. Lord, you are our God, and we are your people. So as you speak to us, we pray that you would help us to not only understand, uh, but to treasure your word and what it reveals about who you are and who we are and what that means for us, Lord. We pray that it would shape us to be conformed more and more to the likeness of Christ. And as we are shaped to be more like you, we pray that you would help us to reveal you all the more accurately, all the more frequently to those around us that they might know you as well. So Lord, speak to us. We're here to listen. We're here to give you our full attention and hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, each year, we have a church theme as the ethos or the characteristic culture that we want to embody as a church for the year. Our church theme helps to focus and unify us as a church so that we're moving together throughout the year. Last year, our church theme was Rediscover Church, where we centered on rediscovering what it means to cultivate a culture of discipling and gospel-revealing community as the church gathered, and rediscovering what it means to love our neighbors and our gospel workers sent to disciple the nations as the church scattered. Uh, and this year, you might have already caught all the hints, but our church theme is Revealing Jesus where we want to focus on revealing Jesus with our lives and our words to one another and to the world around us as individual believers and collectively uh, as the church of Jesus Christ. And there's actually a connection between last year's theme and this year's theme. As we have been rediscovering church this past year, revealing Jesus should be the inevitable effect. So that's what we'll be unpacking more in today's sermon as we focus on a church theme for the year, which is revealing Jesus. So the one thing for today is this. Let's reveal Jesus with our lives and words as individual Christians and the local church. Let's reveal Jesus with our lives and words as individual Christians and the local church. Each week, we usually preach expositional sermons through one passage of Scripture, uh, but today we're going to take a different approach and look at various passages to address issues related to our church theme, again, revealing Jesus. So we'll look at two ways of revealing Jesus. First, revealing Jesus with our lives. Second, revealing Jesus with our words. And each of the, in each of the main points, uh, we'll look at two subpoints to help us to better understand different contexts in which we can reveal Jesus. So first, revealing Jesus with our lives as individual Christians. Now, if I told you to go start revealing Jesus tomorrow, what would you do? What would it look like? Where would you even start? Before we can reveal Jesus with our lives, we need to know what Jesus' life and ministry was like, and especially how it was experienced by others around him so that we can reveal him accurately. The beginning of Jesus' public ministry is introduced to us in the Gospel account of Luke with Jesus in his hometown synagogue. And in order to explain what his ministry would be all about, Jesus takes from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and reads these words in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 19. It says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as we continue to see Jesus' ministry throughout the gospel accounts, we see that's exactly what he does. Jesus proclaims, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then he fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. He liberates those who are held captive and oppressed by demons, and he gives sight to the blind, along with healing the sick, leprous, paralyzed, deformed, and even raising the dead. So Jesus left a powerful impact on the people that, uh, that he interacted with in his daily life and ministry. So now, as believers in Jesus Christ, our work should point to his work. We are to reveal Jesus to others in a similar way as Jesus did, through good works, especially for the weak marginalized, and broken in our society. And as individual Christians, this should be expressed in all areas of our lives, personal, family, work, church, and neighbor. But for the sake of time, we'll primarily focus on the area of work right now. One of the most crucial places to reveal Jesus with our lives is in and through our workplaces. And I'm not just talking about going to the office. I mean, that's a workplace, but I'm talking about our work in general. That might be uh, working at home, like 
uh, to your family as a parent, or it might be literally like working from home remotely, or it might be uh, whatever work you're doing in the office. But I'm talking about work in a broad sense in that way. Work accounts for about 50% of our waking hours on any given weekday. We spend around 2,200 hours per year at work, compared to only about 100 hours per year as the gathered church. So that's 22 times the amount that we spend together every Sunday is spent at work each year. And as important as the gathered local church is, and we'll look at that next to see just how important the church is in revealing Jesus, revealing Jesus must not stay confined to only the 100 hours a year that we come together as the gathered church, but it must permeate the other 2,200 hours a year that we spend at work. When we participate in restoring brokenness in and through our work, whether that's the personal brokenness in our colleagues, clients, or stakeholders, or whether that's systemic brokenness in our company, industry, or society, whenever we do that, we are pointing people to the greater restoration that Jesus offers for sinners in the gospel. As Christians, we bear the name of Christ. And so how we live our lives inevitably reveals to the rest of the world what Jesus is like. As Christians, if we work just to make a living, or to use others for our own benefit, or to make a name for ourselves, then we lie about who Jesus is. Jesus never lived his life and served for any of those purposes. But if we work sacrificially for the good of others to the glory of God, then our lives tell the truth of who Jesus is, because that's how Jesus carried out all of his work, which is ultimately seen as he hung naked on a cross as our substitute savior. He gave up his life for the good of, other, for the good of others. You know, most people will not first encounter Christians in churches, but they'll first encounter Christians in and through workplaces. Therefore, most people will first get a glimpse of who Jesus is through individual Christians, through you, as you go about your everyday work. So ask yourself this. As people interact with you in your day-to-day -day work life, and as people are on the receiving end of your day-to-day -day work, what are you revealing about who Jesus is? We're revealing something about him. And the question is, how accurate is it to who he really is? You know, I don't know if anyone here knows who Arthur Guinness was, but let me share a bit about him. Arthur Guinness was an Irish brewer, entrepreneur, and philanthropist. But most importantly, he was a Christian. When Guinness moved to the city of Dublin in the mid-1700s, people were drinking from the same water in which they dumped their garbage and sewage, and then they were dying as a result. Consequently, many in the city avoided drinking water, but instead drank alcohol because the process of making alcoholic drinks killed the germs in the water. But that resulted in what became known as the gin craze, where drunkenness was a major problem, leading to an increase in crime and poverty. So the city was broken. So seeing this desperate situation, Guinness saw it as his Christian duty to use his ability to brew beer for the good of the city. He created a new style of beer known as stout, which was nutritious, filling, and much lower in alcohol than gin. And that was the beginning of Guinness Brewery. And his company, uh, at his company, Guinness paid his employees wages that were 10 to 20% higher than average and provided subsidies for funeral expenses, educational benefits, and a guaranteed two pints of Guinness beer a day. You know, at the time, no other companies were providing these kinds of benefits. They were unheard of. And so the name Guinness began to be known for generosity. Not only that, but before corporate social responsibility was ever a thing, Guinness hired a chief medical officer to visit almost 2,000 homes of its employees, representing nearly 10,000 employees and their dependents. And as a result, Guinness built quality homes that the company's staff could rent at subsidized rates which helped lift them out of poverty and allow them to escape the slums of Dublin. And all of this was driven by Guinness's Christian faith and his understanding that everything belongs to God, that it's all by his grace. In other words, as a representative of Christ, Guinness worked sacrificially for the good of others and to the glory of God, and many lives in his city were transformed. And what the poor experienced physically through one Christian's work in the city was a beautiful, revealing picture of what sinners can experience spiritually through Christ's work on the cross. A Christian's work is a winsome witness for Christ, 
as, pe- as people often experience the gospel through a Christian's life long before they understand the gospel through a Christian's words. At this point, perhaps some of us are thinking, well, I'm in a job or industry where I just don't see how I can reveal Jesus. Or, well, I'm just not Arthur Guinness. If that's you, just consider the fact that Arthur Guinness worked in the beer industry, which is what many would relegate to being completely secular. What good, what redemption can come out of the beer industry? And yet, his work was one of the primary ways that Guinness revealed Jesus in his life and in the city. What was crucial for him to reveal Jesus was not the job or industry that he was in, but it was the fact that he was a Christian. And as soon as Christians walk into a job or industry, the Christian doesn't turn secular, but the job turns sacred. Whenever Jesus touched lepers, he didn't become polluted, but his touch had the effect of cleansing the leper. And in the same way, as representatives of Christ, as those who have the spirit of Christ dwelling within us, when we enter into toxic work environments, deal with unreasonable expectations, and engage in a job that many around us either idolize or find meaningless, we ought not uh, to ourselves become toxic, unreasonable idolaters or meaningless wanderers. That should not happen to us. Rather, like Christ, we bring his healing touch upon the brokenness in our jobs. And through our jobs, we shine his light upon the darkness in our city. Perhaps start by asking two simple questions. First, where do I see brokenness, frustration, and hopelessness in my work? And second, how might God be calling me to participate in bringing healing and renewal to these areas in my work? I know that many of us have a tendency to complain about certain aspects of our work to one another, which is essentially answering that first question. Where do I see brokenness, frustration, and hopelessness in my work? We probably are all already know where the brokenness lies, but we often stop there. We end with just complaint. But what if? What if, as fellow Christians, our complaints became pathways to Christ, where we began to brainstorm and envision together answers to that second question? How might God be calling me to participate in bringing healing and renewal to these areas in my work? No, that should be the difference of Christians in the workplace. We don't just complain, but our complaints lead us to find ways to reveal Christ in and through our work. And it should make all the difference, not only for ourselves and our perspectives towards work, but to the people that we work with and to the people that we serve through our work. And just think about the kind of legacy that this can leave with our children and the next generation of Christians. Do you really want them seeing your life and all they see from it is work is about complaining, work is about idolatry, work is about making a name for yourself, or do you want them to see that work is about working for the good of others, working for the glory of God, that no matter what I do, what job, what industry, I can do it all for the glory of God? What kind of legacy, as a believer, do you want to leave to, the, to your children and the next generation as they see you go about your, your everyday work? What's interesting about the legacy of Arthur Guinness is that most of his descendants have chosen one of three careers. There are the brewing Guinnesses, they continue to brew beer, the banking Guinnesses, and what some have called the Guinnesses for God, who have worked as pastors and missionaries. But the truth is, they were all Guinnesses for God. Whatever the profession, whether brewing, banking, or pastoring, following the legacy of Arthur Guinness, they understood that their work could be and should be done for the glory of God. Because of the passionate, generous, city-transforming, Christ-centered, God-glorifying work of Arthur Guinness, and of course the grace of God, the majority of his descendants have continued to represent and reveal well who Jesus is to the world around them. May that be our longing as well. Not only that we would reveal Jesus well as individual Christians, but that we would impress such a conviction upon our children and the next generation of believers that when they see our lives, they see that we reveal Jesus well in all areas of life, personal, family, work, church, neighbor. So we reveal Jesus through our lives as individual Christians and also as the local church. I want us to think about how many baptism testimonies we have heard that started with something like this. I grew up in the church, but I honestly didn't see anything different about the people in the church compared to everyone else in the world, so I left the church. Or I grew up in the church, 
But because of how judgmental and hypocritical people were in the church, I left the church. These are sad ways to start testimonies. But by God's grace, he still saved them in spite of their negative experiences in the church growing up. But that should not be the testimonies that we long to hear. Rather, we should long to hear for testimonies that begin more like this. I grew up in the church, and I saw how distinct the people were from the rest of the world in their love and holiness. And that made me want to learn more about who Jesus is. Or I grew up in the church, and even though it was clear that they are all sinners just like me, I could also clearly see how God was changing them. They apologized. They repented. They forgave each other. They reconciled. I saw restoration. I saw change. I saw transformation. So they were more and more humble, forgiving, generous, and loving people. And it made me want to learn more about who Jesus is. You know, that should not sound so far-fetched to us because that's the testimony that we see in Scripture. In describing the early church in Jerusalem, this is what it says in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And they, that's the early church in Jerusalem, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who, be- who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here we see the same sacrificial works of love and renewal for the good of others and to the glory of God that we earlier saw should characterize every individual Christian. But now we see what happens when those Christians who are living that way are gathered together in a local church where they're concentrated all together. As they submit themselves to God's word, fellowship with one another, remember Christ in the breaking of bread or the Lord's Supper, and as they pray for God's will to be done, what is the effect? They shared what they had with one another. They even sold what they had to provide for those in need. They desired to spend more time with one another day by day. Once a week just wasn't enough. They gained favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, what do you think the testimonies of those being saved sounded like in that church? I imagine they all kind of started like this. I could not deny how loving and kind and generous these people in the church were to one another and to others around them, and it made me want to learn more about who Jesus is. And day by day, the Lord added to those who were being saved. If someone wanted to know more about Jesus, where should they look? Of course, they should look at God's word to see for themselves. You know, we talk about getting into God's word, getting on a Bible reading plan. That is vital. But by God's design, they should also look at the church. Jesus taught in John chapter 13, verse 34 to 35 this, A new command I give you, love one another, As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. In other words, when we reveal Jesus to one another in the church, as I have loved you, so you must love one another, we reveal Jesus to the world together as the church. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. When we we each reveal Jesus to one another in the church, we reveal Jesus to the world together as the church. By our breath and depth of love for one another in the church, we are to be a Jesus-revealing or gospel-revealing community. In terms of breadth, our love for one another reaches and includes a diversity of people who are so different, so far apart, even who are once hostile towards one another, who apart from the power of the gospel, apart from the work of Christ in our lives, would never unite together. And yet, even though we're so different, Christ brings us together to be one in him. The world does not operate like that. In the world, like is attracted to like. Different stays away from different. But that's what makes this community supernatural. It does not operate like the rest of the world. Different comes together to be one. In terms of depth, Christ doesn't just bring people to tolerate each other, to be in the same proximity with one another but not interact deeply. But he makes us so tightly committed to one another, so tightly bonded to one another, that the Bible calls us one new man, fellow citizens, members of the household of God. 
So now as the family of God, even if everything else is different about us, we have a depth of commitment to one another that is closer than even blood because of our common bond in Christ. So when someone walks into our church gatherings and sees people who are so different from one another and yet care so deeply for one another, it doesn't make sense apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. How can you and you not only be in the same room, but you guys are actually close friends? Not only that, but you treat each other closer than brothers and sisters. How does that make sense? When, you, when they hear the gospel, it all makes sense. You know, look around you. Go ahead, I give you permission. Turn your heads, look around at the people around you. Recognize that everyone here is not like you. And that's a good thing. We're from different families and upbringings, different vocations and socioeconomic classes, different life stages and life experiences. We have different faces and features, different personalities and interests, different strengths and weaknesses. We're a diverse community. And that's how Christ's church should be because that's how God designed it to be. I think sometimes we get so frustrated because we say to ourselves, I wish everyone was more like me. That would be so much easier. And that would also be so much like the world. It's so hard to be a diverse community and yet unified as one. And that's what makes this community supernatural because only Christ can do it to that depth and breadth. And it's a gift. It's a gift that we have the responsibility and of stewarding as God's people. We have the great responsibility and opportunity to reveal Jesus in our breadth and depth of love for one another. Let's not waste it. Let's make this opportunity a huge way that we re reveal Jesus to the world around us. So what does this practically mean for us? How can we reveal Jesus together as a local church? First, at a bare minimum, if you're a Christian, you should join a church and commit to regularly gather as a church. You cannot reveal Jesus together as a church if you're not a member of a church or if you're not regularly present with your church. You're not part of that church, so you can't reveal anything because you're not a constituent part of it. So that's the first thing. You know, I know that January is the start of a new, uh, of a new year, and a time of New Year's resolutions. And perhaps some of you are here today because of a New Year's resolution you made to come to church today. And praise God, we're glad that you're here. And my exhortation to you is not to just come and go like so many other New Year's resolutions. Don't indefinitely hop between churches, but commit to be a member of a church somewhere. And it doesn't have to be our church, but commit to be a, a member of a church somewhere. Stay there, grow there, reveal Jesus together with your church there. So that's first, uh, join a church and gather regularly with your church. Second, we should strive to know who the other members of the church are and to pray for one another, which is why we have a membership directory. You know, if we are to reveal Jesus as a church, we should know who even makes up this church. I encourage you to pray for a few members each day. And if they have children, please pray for them too. And systematically make your way through the whole membership. Third, personally sacrifice your comforts preferences, resources, and time. You know, everyone loves the idea of being a part of a diverse church of deep relationships. Everyone loves that until it requires sacrifice. The reality is that just as Christ laid down his life to create such a gospel-revealing community, we must also be willing to lay down our lives to maintain and cultivate this kind of community. It won't just happen. We don't just stay in our seats complaining why the leaders aren't making it so. If we are a member of this church, we are a constituent part that makes it so. We need a sacrifice as Christ sacrificed for us to see this kind of community that reveals who Christ is. Have you been a new person in a church in a while? Or a new person or a different person just in some other context? We forget what it's like to be new or different. But these are prime opportunities that we can begin to show the love of Christ to one another especially to those who are new or different. Very practically, at Sunday celebration and life group, when you see two different people that you might talk to afterwards, at least half the time, walk up to the person that you're less comfortable with and genuinely get to know them better. After Sunday celebration, also forego your food preferences and eat at a place where more people can afford and then invite others to join. 
These are very practical ways that we can show the love of Christ to those around us. They require very little sacrifice. I know at times they feel costly in the moment, but in the large scheme of things, to see another person and allow them to experience the love of Christ versus my preference for that moment. It's so much more worth it to forego our preferences in that moment to love this person to experience Christ. Also, notice what part of the body is hurting right now and see how you might be able to help in whatever way that you can. It might be through opening your home, eating a meal together, listening to understand what they're going through, and praying for them. It might be through using your skills, experience, and network to help them find a job. It might be through helping them financially for a certain need and helping them to be financially sustainable or helping them to apply for the benevolence fund where our church at large can help in those ways. So personal sacrifice. And fourth, invite your non-Christian friends to church gatherings and invite church members to hang out with your non-Christian friends. If the community of the local church is one of the greatest means to reveal Jesus, then one of the greatest ways we can reveal Jesus to our non-Christian friends is by exposing them to our church community. Invite them to church gatherings so that they can see and experience the supernatural breadth and depth of love from the greatest concentration of the local church community. And if you're grabbing a meal or hanging out with your non-Christian friends, invite church members to come along with you to build genuine friendships with them. The more members in the church that they get to know and befriend, the more opportunities that they would have to see and experience Christ through the love of this community. So how do we reveal Jesus? First, we reveal Jesus with our lives. And second, we reveal Jesus with our words. And the first context of revealing Jesus with our words that we'll look at is this. It's inside the church. You know, we need to understand that words are powerful. Words can either build up or tear down. With words, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it and blessed Adam and Eve. But with words, Satan tempted Adam and Eve to rebel and sin against God. With words, Jesus healed the sick and raised the dead. But with words, the people cried out, crucify him. With words, we can give hope to the hopeless and encourage the fearful. But with words, we can crush others' hopes and stir up their anger. With words, we can help the estranged and lonely feel loved and accepted. But with words, we can ruin relationships and destroy communities. Words are powerful. And not only are they powerful, but they also reveal our hearts. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil produces, uh, evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. In other words, we speak out of what our heart values or worships most. If you value or worship achievement or success, then you will speak well of people who help you get things done, speak bad or harshly of people who hinder what you're doing, and ignore those who you feel have nothing to contribute to what you're doing. If you value or worship efficiency, then you will speak constant criticism to others about how they're not good enough or fast enough, and your lack of patience will come out in your tone. If you value or worship relationships, then you will not speak to the people hard truths that they need to hear out of fear of damaging your relationship with them. But as fellow Christians inside the church, what should our speech sound like if our hearts value and worship Jesus above all else? It should sound like how Jesus speaks to us as his people. In the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, it opens with a scene where John has a vision where he sees the risen Christ in all of his glory. And John is so fearfully overwhelmed that he basically passes out. And after Jesus touches and comforts John, Jesus dictates to John letters to write down for seven of his churches that existed during that time. In essence, Jesus is speaking to his people. And listen how Jesus begins his first letter in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, and this is what he first says. I know your works. I know your works. Remember how John passed out in fear when he saw the risen Christ in all his glory? Imagine you are the recipient of this letter from Jesus, and he starts to say to you, I know your works. How are you feeling right now? How do you think he'd finish that sentence? I know your works, and I'm very displeased and disappointed with you. 
I know your works, and I want nothing to do with you. You know, Jesus could have rightfully crushed us in how he finished that sentence, but that's not what he does. He says this in, in verses 2 to 3. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. In essence, Jesus encourages his people. He says, I know your works, and I'm pleased with you. I know your works, and I want you to know that I'm proud of you. But that's not the only thing that Jesus has to say to them. He continues in verses 4 to 7. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus clearly sees both the positives and the negatives in his people. He sees it all. And he is just as emphatic about the negatives as he is about the positives. He speaks the truth to them, but he doesn't crush them. He doesn't reject them, but he invites them back to himself. He's basically saying, you're not in a right relationship with me right now, but you could be, and I want you to be. Repent and come back to me. If not, there will be massive consequences that I don't want you to experience. But if you return to me, I promise that there will be immeasurable blessings that I long to give you. And over and over again, throughout the seven letters, this is how Jesus speaks to his churches. He encourages them. He helps them to see where they are not right with him. He warns them of what will happen if they do not repent, if they continue down this path without change. And he reminds them, that it's so much better to be in a right relationship with him than continuing down this path of destruction. So what should we call this kind of speech? The Bible calls this kind of speech speaking the truth in love. And if our hearts value and worship Jesus above all else, and if we are to reveal Jesus with, with our words, then our speech should sound like how Jesus speaks to us as his people. And that's exactly what we see prescribed for us as members of Christ's church. In a passage that describes how God has designed his church to mature in Christ, it says this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The way we grow up or mature in Christ is speaking the truth in love to one another. And the more we speak the truth in love to one another, the more we resemble and reveal how Christ speaks to us. You know, if you've been in the church for some time, I'm sure you've probably heard and used this phrase, speaking the truth in love, many times before. So I want to unpack this a bit. On the one hand, speaking the truth is not enough. You can use the truth in a very self-centered way that's hurtful and damaging to another person because you're not doing it for that person's best interest. That's truth devoid, empty of, missing love. And if you speak the truth without love, it's actually no longer really the truth because it's so twisted by your own emotions and agendas that it's no longer for the good of that person. The truth is so bent out of shape, it's, it's unrecognizable. It's no longer the truth. And you can say that you're just being authentic or genuine, but you're just being authentically and genuinely self-centered, more consumed with yourself rather than being consumed with Christ and loving the person right in front of you. On the other hand, some people have a semblance of, I'll be loving by not speaking the truth. So we won't say hard things to people, even though we see things that are wrong and damaging in their lives. We say nothing because we think that's the more loving, compassionate thing to, to do, to just let it go. But that's obviously not true. If someone is hurting themselves and we see them about to jump off a cliff, we should do everything we can to say, stop. 
the loving thing to do is not to keep our mouths shut, but to speak. If someone is hurting themselves, they're going down a path of destruction where they're going to end up jumping off a cliff, you speak. That's the loving thing to do. The reality is that you cannot have truth without love, and you cannot have love without truth. We need both of them at the same time in order to have either of them. They come as a package. Truth without love is no truth at all. Love without truth is no love at all. You have them both or you don't have either. As fellow Christians inside the church, the aim of speaking the truth in love is so that collectively we may mature and conform more and more into the likeness of Christ, which means that our words are aimed at intentionally helping one another to follow Christ. That's also known as discipling. So in speaking the truth in love, we're talking about cultivating a culture of discipling. We're speaking to help each other become more like him, to help each other to follow him. If you, if you swerve from the path of following Christ, it leads to destruction. Stay the straight path. That's discipling. Stay. Fix your eyes on Christ. Keep walking towards him. Don't swerve. We're not speaking about generic truth to help each other get better at, let's say, math. That's not a bad thing. I'm sure we all need help with math. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about subjective opinion to help each other better conform to our own preferences. But we're talking about the truth of God's word and intentionally helping one another to understand and apply the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives. Remember from that Ephesians passage, that's what it says, is God's design for us to mature and to become like him. You cannot mature and become like Christ if you don't have other brothers and sisters speaking the truth and love to you. That is God's design. You should want that. If nobody's speaking the truth and love to you, you will not become more like Christ. You will stay in your childish ways. You will not mature. You'll be tossed to and fro by the winds and waves of life. But when we speak the truth in love to one another, that is God's design by which we all mature. We get strengthened. We become more like Christ. And so when we withhold that from each other, we basically say, I want to stay childish. I want to continue to swerve. I want to continue to see our whole church continue to go down this path of not falling, destruction. So we speak the truth in love because we want each other to follow Christ because that is the most loving thing we could desire for them. So what might this look like? You know, there was a time uh, in my life where I began noticing some concerns in a person's life. Uh, let me call him Bob. There were some things in Bob's life that I wanted to bring up, but I wasn't able to quite articulate it. So I sat down one morning and began to think and write down what I noticed with specific examples. But if I went to Bob with a long list, no matter how constructive the feedback is, it would feel crushing. So I start crossing out some of them and combining some, and I ended up with three things that I wanted to bring up with him. And so I sent Bob a message and set up a time to meet with him. And leading up to that day, I felt quite anxious. I wasn't quite sure how he might respond. And when I met with him, I told him that there were some more personal things that I wanted to bring up with him. And I gave a lot of disclaimers about how I value him as a friend, how I love him, and how what I'm about to say doesn't diminish any of that, but I'm saying them because I love him. And then I began to share those three things that I had seen in his life that I felt were not aligned with the character of Christ and how I wasn't sure if he was aware of them or not. And he responded, thankfully, graciously, he thanked me for bringing these things up with him. He said that these were all legitimate things that I was bringing up, and he apologized. But what surprised me was what he said next. He said that he was actually sad that I didn't bring these things up with him sooner. And he invited me to bring these things up with him as soon as I can, as soon as I can the next time I see them, even if I can't articulate it perfectly. And we ended that time with prayer, thanking God for our friendship and for putting each other in our lives uh, to help each other to become more like Christ. And then we continued catching up and sharing about other personal things in our lives. You know, I might, this might sound very idealistic, but it's not. This really happened. And this is what happens when we continue to speak the truth and love to one another. I was not the first person to speak the truth and love to this person. But he had to continue to mature from others. And then when I spoke it, he continued to mature. And vice versa. I had many people in my life that have done this for me. I'm so thankful for it. I'm not saying that this is how it always looks to speak the truth in love, but this is just one example for my own life. 
Just bear in mind, though, that speaking the truth in love will not always be so appreciated in the example that I, as in the example that I just gave. Even still, that should not deter us from doing so. Sometimes people might not respond so well. But still, by God's design, the way we grow up or mature in Christ is speaking the truth in love to one another. And the more we speak the truth in love to one another, the more we resemble and reveal how Christ speaks to us. So we should still do it. Let me just pause to speak to those who, who will be on the receiving end of someone speaking the truth and love to you. And hopefully, because we have people around us who love us, all of us will be on the receiving end at some point. In fact, you should desire to be on the receiving end of this at some point because this is God's design for us all to mature. You should not be dreading it, but when it comes up, you should be thankful for it. Still, nobody likes to be corrected. Nobody likes to be rebuked. But the Bible says that we all need it. And even if we know this, it's still not easy to have an inviting and accepting attitude whenever we're on the receiving end. And that's why we need to root ourselves deeply in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it would just be too much. It would be crushing for us to hear these things. As Christians, we should agree with God's judgment of us that no one is righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. Nobody has judged us more intensely, deeply, pervasively, and truly than God himself. We believe, as Christians, that we are totally depraved, meaning that every aspect of our life has been marred by sin. And if our faith is in the crucified Christ as our substitute, then we acknowledge that we deserve the judgment that Christ bore on our behalf. That means that no matter what anyone else has to say about us, it doesn't come anywhere close to what we already affirm about ourselves in the gospel. We already believe that we are the worst sinners, rightfully deserving of eternal judgment. If we're Christians, that's what we believe. So no matter what anyone else has to say, it doesn't even come close to what we already acknowledge about ourselves. And that helps us to receive it. But as Christians, we also agree with God's justification of us. Through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, we have been justified and have peace with God. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If we truly understand that despite the judgment we deserve, we have been made right with God by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave his life for us, then no matter what anyone says of us, we have reason to be secure. We don't have the need to justify ourselves because we already stand justified before the only one that matters. We can rest assured that if God has justified me, then who can condemn me? If God justifies me, accepts me, and will never forsake me, then why should I feel insecure and fear criticism from anyone lesser? I have my justification in Christ. I stand before God secure. And therefore, nothing can bring me out of that security. And I can hear hard things from people around me. The gospel of Jesus Christ enables us to humbly receive correction and rebuke, especially when it's coming from our spiritual family who are doing their best to speak the truth and love to us. And even if we're not able to receive it well right away, and I confess, I've been there. I know what it's like not to give it well and not to receive it well. All of us probably do. The gospel still enables us to repent and reconcile with one another so that we can continue to mature in resembling and revealing how Christ speaks to us. So reveal Jesus through our words inside the church and also outside the church. You know, earlier, in revealing Jesus through our lives, we talked about working for the good of others and to the glory of God. And the aim for such good works is to point to the greater restoration and salvation that we all need and that Jesus has provided for sinners on the cross. But the only way that that pointing to Christ can occur is if we speak. Good works alone don't point to Christ. You have to speak about him. Good works are an important part of revealing Jesus, but they do not replace speaking. Listen to what God's word says in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 to 15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. In order to be saved, one must call upon the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. 
But the only way that will happen is if they hear, which means someone preaches or speaks to them the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And who are those who are to speak about Jesus to them? Those who are sent. And if you're a Christian, I don't want any of us saying, well, I'm not sent. Every week, we end our Sunday celebration by being commissioned as we hear, HMCC, you are now sent out to transform the world. We hear that every week. Why do we say that? For this very reason. As Christians, we are sent out to speak about the good news of Jesus Christ so that others may hear and believe and be saved from their sin. And that's not an HMCC thing. That's a Jesus thing. It's the Great Commission where Jesus says to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He sends us out. Every week as we end Sunday celebration, we are reminded and recommissioned to go out into the world to reveal Jesus, not only with our lives, but with our words. So what might this look like? First, identify yourself as a follower of Christ. If people don't know that you're a Christian, none of your good works will ever be connected to the work of Christ. How can it be? They don't know that you represent him. If nobody knows that you bear the name of Christ, then you are simply not revealing him to anyone. This doesn't have to be done in a clumsy or offensive way, but you could ask your coworkers how their weekend was. And when they inevitably ask how your weekend was, you could talk about how you enjoyed uh, the Sunday service at your church. Second, pray that God would open doors to move conversations from the surface to the serious to the spiritual. You know, surface conversation would be like, how was your weekend? And perhaps you tell them how you enjoyed uh, the Sunday service at your church, and they respond, oh, I used to go to church, but I haven't gone in a while. Now, moving from the surface to the serious, you might say, oh, how come you stopped going? And perhaps they say, I just went because I went to a Christian school growing up, but I haven't really gone since then. Now, moving from the serious to the spiritual, you might say, well, for me, the opposite actually happened. I didn't go to church growing up, but when I was going through a difficult time in my marriage, a friend invited me, so I went. And I know it might sound strange, but it was my faith in Jesus that not only saved my marriage, but saved me from constantly trying to find my acceptance in family, friends, work, and everything else. And perhaps your coworker might be interested in hearing more, perhaps not. But at least they know that your faith in Christ makes a practical difference in your life and that they can go to you anytime if they ever want to hear more. Third, be prepared to give an answer for your hope. Let's say in the previous example, your coworker responds to you saying, so how did your faith in Jesus do that for you? You know, God's word says that we are to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So in response, you might say, well, the problem was that when my wife was upset with me, I just couldn't handle it, so I shut down and tried to escape to friends. But when I, when I had conflict with friends, I just couldn't handle it, so I turned to work. But when work wasn't going well, I just kept running and looking elsewhere. And it was just this endless cycle of trying to find acceptance in all the wrong things. But when I put my faith in Christ, I realized that even though I deserve God's punishment because of all my sins against me, he loves me still and sent his son Jesus to live, die, and resurrect in my place so that if I repent of my sin and believe in him, he forgives me and accepts me, and will never leave me. And when I had that kind of radical acceptance from God, it helped me to be able to face all the problems in my marriage rather than running away from them. Now, I'm not sure if it will sound like that. I'm not sure how your coworker might respond, but that's out of your hands. Only God saves people. But we have the responsibility and privilege and joy of sharing about the good news of Jesus Christ with those around us. And we should always be prepared to share that hope with others, not only with our lives, but with our words. You know, as Christians, if we are speaking the truth and love with one another inside the church, then sharing the gospel with people outside the church is the inevitable outcome of speaking the truth in love to them. The greatest truth to be told is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the greatest love for others is to desire Christ for them and for them to be in heaven with us. If salvation comes by hearing and believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, how could we, who are sent out by Christ, remain silent? John Bunyan was a 17th century English writer and preacher. He was converted at around the age of 30, 
and he began preaching the good news of Jesus Christ almost immediately. But he was later arrested and imprisoned for preaching without government approval. But even though he was arrested, at any time, he could be released from prison if he just agreed to stop preaching. To be clear, they didn't ask him to deny his faith in Christ or anything like that. All they asked is just stop preaching and you can walk free. Anytime you want, you can get out of jail. Just stop preaching. But it tore his conscience to shreds at the thought of not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he could not in good conscience agree to stop preaching. And so he stayed in prison for 12 years. All the while, he had a wife and four children who were 10 years old and under. And the oldest of his children was born blind. And his family survived off of the charity of people and what Bunyan could provide for his family by making shoelaces in prison. And yet, Bunyan remained in prison for 12 years when he could have just walked out in an instant if he just agreed to stop preaching. That's how much speaking about Jesus to others meant to Bunyan. Now, what would it be like if all of us in our church were that bound by our consciences and that compelled to speak about Jesus to others? What would it be like to have such a culture of evangelism in our church where it's normal to intentionally share the gospel to persuade others to put their trust in Christ, where we ask and share with and pray with and learn from and celebrate with one another about attempting spiritual conversations with those outside the church? What would it be like? Not only would we all be better equipped and more emboldened to evangelize, and I'm convinced more joyful in our fellowship of Christ, but more people would have the opportunity to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. So as we begin 2023 with our church theme of revealing Jesus, let's begin to think and pray about how we as individual Christians and the local church can reveal Jesus to one another and to the world around us this year. And as we begin our One Desire Fast today, and as we pray through our church-wide prayer topics related to revealing Jesus each day over the next two weeks, May God fan into flame a burning passion to represent and reveal our Lord and Savior well with our lives and with our words. So our life application for today is this. Fast and pray for the church-wide prayer topics related to revealing Jesus during the One Desire Fast. Now this was announced earlier today, and you can access the prayer topics at bit.ly slash capital ODF 23 lowercase prayers. You know, I know that this One Life application doesn't seem to do justice to everything that we covered today. But as you fast and pray each day for the different church-wide prayer topics during the One Desire Fast over the next couple weeks, you'll find that everything that we mentioned today are reiterated in those Revealing Jesus ODF prayer topics. So pray for them every day. Let them sink deep into your heart and let them come out of your heart in the words that you speak and the life that you live. And I trust that as we're fasting and praying for those topics, God will convict each of us in more pointed ways and lead us to more personal applications to reveal Jesus this year. So once again, the one thing for today is this. Let's reveal Jesus with our lives and words as individual Christians and the local church. If you're able, can we all stand as we respond now to God's word?